Welcome to Pastor Matters, the podcast of the Center for Preaching and Pastoral Leadership at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We hope this conversation will both equip and encourage you to lead healthy churches that make disciples for the glory of God. Hi, I'm Chuck Lawless, and I want to thank you for listening to another episode of Pastor Matters, the podcast for the Center of Preaching and Pastoral Leadership at Southeastern Seminary. I'm joined today first with Caleb Iverson, our co-host and my assistant at Southeastern. Caleb, how are you doing today? Doing well, Dr. Lawless. How are you doing? I'm, I'm doing well. I'm excited about our guest today. It's Dr. John Ewart. I've known Dr. Ewart for how many years, Dr. Ewart? Probably over 25. Goodness. I met Dr. Ewart when he was a—actually, you were pastoring first, and your church was recognized by— Tom Rayner and the leadership at the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary for being a strongly evangelistic church. Is that right? That's where we met. Yes, it's a, that's a long time ago. I, I remember getting this three-inch packet from somebody named Tom Rainier, <laughs> and I didn't know who he was, and I threw it in the trash can, and my associate pastor actually dug it out of the trash can and filled it out, or we would have never met. Oh, that was the survey we sent out. Yeah, that okay. was the effective evangelistic church survey. It, it was, yeah. it was. And that was uh, the middle 90s, I think, Probably. when we did that, that study. And yeah. you later became a doctor ministry student with us at, at Southern Seminary, then doctor missiology, and you joined the staff at Southern Seminary, then came here to Southeastern Seminary. And Dr. Ewart serves now as the professor of missions and pastoral leadership here at Southeastern. He also serves as the associate vice president for global theological initiatives and ministry centers here. So, John, let me ask you first just to tell us what that means, GTI and ministry centers. Yeah, so I have a background in developing distance learning programs, did that at Southern and at Southeastern, but the Global Theological Initiative was a specialized branch where we were looking at how we could actually very specifically train the leaders of the global church in specialized cohorts, uh, which meant that we had to have not only contextualized uh, content and curriculum, but also contextualized pricing sometimes to help them. So we're, we're walking alongside seminaries to train their faculties, administration, sometimes walking along mission boards and training their executive leadership. And then we also create theological educational opportunities where there are none. So right now we're training several thousand leaders from about 40, or no, excuse me, 52 countries in eight languages. Uh, the vast majority of those people would be positioned leaders, uh, either in some kind of entity or as a local church leader. You, you've just spoken your heart, as I know you, and that is training nationals, training leaders around the world. But you, you started as a, a senior pastor, as a pastor. So how, do, how did you as a pastor develop this heart that we would want all pastors listening to us to develop as well? Yeah, well, the real secret is I actually started as a missionary with the Foreign Mission Board. That's right. Yeah, so I started as, so my journeyman term, uh, you know, I was a youth pastor, uh, wasn't raised in church at all. So this whole church thing, being called to ministry, all happened fairly radically and um, and went overseas for a couple of years, which was incredibly transformative for me. Had a couple of people in my life who were very missionally oriented, uh, and mo- and they were in local church life and also in associational life. I want to give a shout out. Hmm to what a good associational leader, uh, what kind of impact they can have. And so as a senior pastor, then later, I was the associate pastor of everything for, you know, and then except music, and there's a reason for that. But uh, <laughs> but then became a senior pastor for decades and 
uh, just believe that it was part of our responsibility not to just minister to our own, but we were engaged in both North American and international missions and short-term experiences, but also had that that network of churches and an association that really had a vision for this. So we might be the larger church, make sure we had a team, but then we had all these small churches who could never have a team, but they could send one. And so over the years, we would take large teams of, of multiple churches, and we saw several people becoming career missionaries out of that. It was really exciting to watch. And just and, and the other side of it is, and I, and which feeds into what we're going to talk about probably is, you know, I didn't realize my pastoral life was so much involved in church revitalization. Mm-hmm. We just called it pastoring. But these churches were really dysfunctional, and so the missional life also helped push them toward health. So it was good, on, it was good in both directions. Uh, so you've, you've just segued into where we want to go. As, as I've known you, I've known you as an interim pastor, as a church consultant, uh, as a church revitalizer. So t- tell us how that interest developed for you. Yeah, so... Um, the Lord did that in the sense, and I mean that in the truest, truest way. We were in some really interesting churches. In one church, I was the fourth pastor in six years. Uh, the last pastor had a fist fight with a deacon uh, right before I got there in front of the congregation. So, I mean, pretty unhealthy situations going in, and we just saw God do a work. Um, I take no credit for that. I guess he just knew I had a big mouth and would talk about it. But but he, he revived these churches. He worked through these churches. He led us to understand some, some ways to follow him uh, that, that he could use. And so because of that, you know, when your churches are growing, um, everybody thinks you have some secret. And so suddenly as a pastor, other pastors and denominational people were coming to me saying, what's the secret, you know, that you have that you could tell everybody else, the magic bullet that you could give them? So I was consulting before I realized that that was a thing. Um, and then um, as I studied with Dr. Rayner, seriously, Tom Rayner, uh, at Southern and with you, um, there was just a more formal side to that that I really probably didn't even realize existed. And so, of course, eventually Dr. Rayner asked me to come work alongside of him with you and, and his work, and that formalized that, codified that, and just never have stopped. Any idea how many interim pastorates you have done at this point? Oh, uh, interim pastorates? Probably a dozen or so. Um, I've consulted with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of churches. I don't, I, it would be hard. We have a list. And then, of course, with the international work, which has become really interesting, my work, my church consultation work has, has gone overseas to where, you know, we're, we're talking to thousands of pastors mm. um, in some of these international opportunities to where, uh, where, you know, the church isn't just unhealthy here. And many of our legacy fields around the world, they have exactly the same characteristics and so probably about a dozen, uh, a dozen interims or so. Doctor, you were kind of along that line. If you're talking about church consulting, church revitalization, you've shared some stories with me. Um, what are some of the common characteristics of churches you've worked with? And maybe also share what are some red flags that you've seen that may- maybe pastors could look for in their own churches as well? Yeah, well, part of the, part of the disappointing side of all these conversations is, is that— um, I, you know, and it shouldn't be disappointing. It ought to be very obvious. But, but, but the issues that these churches are dealing with are extremely biblical. I mean, they're, it, it all boils down to their walk with God. Uh, now, that'll take, take a lot of different shapes. But, you know, I, I use this story. Bi- biologists have certain indicator species to study a biosphere. 
Uh, if they study frogs, for example, they'll study frogs and honeybees, for example, to where if the frog population's healthy, if the honeybee population's healthy, the rest of the biosphere tends to be healthy. Amphibians are a real part of that study. So I often talk about the indicator species in a church. So you can look at things like evangelism. You can look at things like stewardship. You can look at, you can look at issues like understood pathways of discipleship. And, and prayer. I mean, there's nothing magic about those things uh, in the sense of it, that shouldn't surprise anybody. But th- those are the things that are failing. And those are the things that have failed that often led them to the place of unhealthiness. They stopped uh, focusing upon the things that God wants them to do and at some point maybe stopped being a church. So do you have hope for the church, John? So the line I often share is this, at my age, um, I Here's what I believe, because I study our culture and cultures around the world. The church of today has exactly what this lost world needs, more than ever, uh, and not just the gospel, uh, certainly the gospel, but even in some more practical ways, community, uh, uh, love, the the things that this world's starving for. The church of today has this more than any time in my life, I believe, the, the potential's there, but I'm also afraid that the church will also not share it more than I've mm. ever seen before in my life. The silence of the church is what scares me. Um, and so I have a lot of hope for the church. I, and because I've read the Bible all the way through, uh, the church is going to exist until the end of the church, uh, until, until Christ decides that's, and the Father decides it's time. And so there will always be a church. It's just going to be what that looks like. And my concern today is that we have so many churches that are unhealthy um, I really do ask the question, are you still really a biblical church? So, Dr. Ewart, where does change start then in these churches that you're working with? If we're seeing those characteristics, those indicators like you were talking about. Does that start with the leader, with the pastor, or where do you start when you're consulting with these churches? Well, I mean, it's a natural flow to some degree because you're almost always talking to the leaders first. I mean, as a consultant from the outside or an interim coming in, you're you're talking to leadership groups. And so, obviously, the leaders have to be on board, and you have to uh, do some assessment about where they are spiritually and where they are in their ability to, to change. Um, but it quickly has to spread. There has to be ownership. You have to get everybody on board. Uh, and so we work really hard. When I'm an interim, I'll always preach through the first 13 chapters of the book of Acts, for example, because I want them to see the church at Jerusalem and the church at Antioch. And I, want to, I, w- I just want to go back and say, this is a healthy church. This is a church that God blessed. And here are two examples of that, that both of them were doing very similar things. And then the in-between story, which ought to make Dr. Lawless happy, is you see this power engagement between the Holy Spirit and Satan fighting over the health of that church. Let me, let me give you a conclusion I've reached, John, and you can respond. In all of my years of church consulting, serving as interim pastor, working with churches uh, around the world as well, I argue that the majority of problems I see, I even talk in terms of, without empirical evidence, 90% or higher, ultimately rest with the leader. Uh, is, that, is that too strong? No. In fact, I quote, you know, I, I, we're referring to, to Dr. Rayner a lot, but I, we should in my life. Uh, Dr. Rayner used to have a line that he would share when we were on the road and say 99% of the time it's the leader. Hmm. And what's interesting about that is it's often the leader who calls you. Of course, I work with a lot of churches that don't have pastors, and so I'm, I'm working with a ton of churches in those transitional times. And so it's the other leaders that you're talking to. 
but but uh, but yeah, it always starts with that. The leaders are often surprised when they begin to realize it's their fault. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you help? You're consulting with a church. You recognize, look, I need to help this pastor who probably doesn't recognize that he's a big part of the problem. Where do you start? How do you yeah. help that pastor? How do you help the pastors listening to us today who who feel hammered a little bit here? Yeah, I understand. Well, and 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 to encourage the pastors out there, you know, um, first of all, we're going to have a long we're going to have long conversations about their personal walks with God. Mm. We do that a lot. Um, I tend to become pretty close to these leaders before we're done. Um, I hope they feel like that I'm there for them to help them. But I'm also going to be trying to challenge them at times with some of the habits they've developed uh, or not developed. Uh, and so, you know, we do a lot of assessment. I mean, that's, <laughs> in fact, sometimes churches call me and want me to just do assessment with them, which I won't do. Uh, we do an entire process with churches, but we do, we do heavy qualitative and quantitative assessment, and that includes the leaders. Uh, and so we're, we're actually helping them. I come from a long line of lawyers and was su- supposed to be a lawyer, according to my family. And um, so we lawyer up. I mean, part of what I'm going to do is I'm not going to go in and, be, and challenge them with opinions. I'm going to go in and we're going to discover the facts, and then we can speak a lot more objectively. And so for pastors out there, in fact, I just taught a group of guys this, that you, know, you need to go back to your churches and work with your leadership on some, some objective uh, qualitative, not just quantitative assessment, and really try to discover where you believe your church is. Most of these guys, I mean, most of the guys I talk to don't have those conversations on mm-hmm. a regular basis. They're just mm-hmm. not having them. So so most leaders I run to, they're doing two things, and I don't blame them. I get it. I was in the middle of it. But they're doing two things. They're reacting to the latest crisis, or they're, re, they're just repeating something on a calendar. And so, you know, it's Monday, so I have to. Now it's Thursday, so I better, and it's already mm. Saturday, so I, and, and it's rinse and repeat. And they're, they're in survival mode. And so to take some time out to actually reflect and assess would go a long way with a lot of these churches, just for them to actually acknowledge some of their—in fact, that's what our, one of our D-men strengths. You know, when guys come in for a D-men seminar, a lot of them are pastors, and it, it forces them to take this break— and then they go through a class where suddenly at the end of the class they're kind of shaking their head going, how come I'm not thinking about this? Why am I, why am I so unfocused on this stuff? And they're just caught up in the middle of the, the whirlpool. So help the pastor who's listening to us today who has to preach this coming Sunday. One simple step he might take between now and then to have a renewed sense of hope, focus, even in the next few days. Yeah, so... It, the key to me is that I believe God has a plan for his church, and I stay focused upon him and not the people. And so I believe that God has a mission, and so I encourage these guys to double-check their prayer life and to double-check their personal Bible study. If their personal Bible study is nothing but sermon preparation, then they're not feeding themselves. And so they become this empty, they become this empty cup you know, I use the illustration of a styrofoam cup with holes punched in it to where they may be pouring some things in, but it's just draining out as fast as it pours in. And, and their ministry has to come out of the overflow. So if they're not in that proper intentional relationship with God and walking with Him the way they should personally, then it's going to be harder and harder and harder for them to have the endurance 
to have the relationship that they should with the church and the world. That's, that's really good. Let me, let me go to a different direction here. Seldom do I hear your name from students who've had you in class when they don't go to Dr. Ewart's bumper cars and train tracks. Twice this week, in fact, somebody has used that image with me from you. So talk to us about those images. <laughs> yeah, so sometimes when I do denominational stuff, they're like, are you going to talk about trains and bumper cars? Um, yeah, I believe in imagery. You know, I, I, m- most of the world that I work with, a lot of them are oral learners anyway, and so they need imagery or they're visual learners, and so a lot of our people are too. And they need simple imagery that they can hang on to, you know. And no, no imagery is perfect. You can allegorize this stuff and get in trouble quickly. But, but a long time ago, because and a lot of it's because of the international work I do, because trains are ubiquitous; they're everywhere. And so, you know, I talk about train tracks, train building, and bumper cars. So, if you think about train tracks, the engineer on the train doesn't lay the tracks. The passengers on the train, they don't get to lay the tracks. They don't get to decide where those tracks are going. Those tracks are already there. Uh, they may have to uncover them. They, they may be covered up because they have been ignoring them. But those train tracks are pre-laid directions by some authority, by a train company, by a government. They're already there. And so the key to getting on a train going, say, from Raleigh to Chicago is, you know, the, for comfort and safety, the train itself might matter. But what really matters is that they're on a, it's on a set of tracks going from Raleigh to Chicago because mm. a train will not run off the tracks. And so you've got to be on track. And so there are certain things that are predetermined. This is where I go back to say God has a plan. God has a predetermined plan for his church. In fact, one of the things that I don't entertain, <laughs> and I get... I get uh, I get in arguments over this sometimes, is I don't believe the church needs to figure out what its mission is. Mm. Uh, that's not something the church—so I, I work with these churches, and they're working really hard on mission statements yeah, and all this I stuff, agree. and I'm sitting there going, this is ridiculous. Read the Bible. There's your, there's your mission mm-hmm. statement. The mission statement's already determined. The church has a mission because God has a mission. It's already there. It's a predetermined set of tracks. So our job is not to lay the tracks. Our job is to build the right contextual train to run on those tracks. What's cool about standard gauge railroad tracks is, is all kinds of different trains can run on the same set of tracks. So quit copying people's trains. Quit, quit looking over at what somebody else is doing or who wrote the latest, greatest book or who just grew the biggest church. or whatever. Quit trying to build their train. You've got to build your own contextual train. Some trains are long, some trains are short, some trains are fast, some trains are slow, some trains carry this, some trains carry that. So you've got these different cars, and, that, and that, that illustration breaks down into programming if you want it to, personnel if you want it to, purposes, marks, whatever the cool name you want to use for it, whatever, you know, but they're all hooked together in synergy, and there's a single engine pulling all that. And so we'll often talk about the Holy Spirit as the engine and the spiritual disciplines that we use to relate to him. But then you have, you know, because what I see out there is, is the opposite. What I see out there is you have the student ministry over here doing it. Man, it's a great student ministry. Woo, that student ministry over here doing a great job. Children's ministry over here. Boy, they're just doing a great job. Youth pastors, you know, they're, they're worship pastors that they're doing his thing. Preachers doing his thing. But they're totally unconnected. And so they're not going anywhere. And so I talk about bumper cars. People love the bumper car rides. I can't overemphasize that statement. Everybody listening to this needs to underline that in their brains. People will fight for, people will cheer on, people will challenge you when you try to shut down the bumper car rides because it's noisy, it's flashy, the sparks are flying, the music's loud, the lines are long. It's very, very busy, and busy and big and loud must be good. And so they love the bumper car rides. 
And all around the world, I talk about bumper cars. It's amazing how many cultures have bumper cars. But when you get into a bumper car, where's it? Where actually, where does the bumper car end up going? It goes hmm. nowhere. It goes around and around in a circle, competing for time, space, and energy. And that's how most of our churches, in fact, most organizations I know, operate to where you're actually trying to get the same volunteers to work in every single ministry. You're, you're working on the same space, the same time frames. You're challenging each other for time, space, and energy, and you're just circling around in a circle bumping into each other instead of connecting one another in a synergistic uh, direction. Because here's the thing about a train. When you get on a train, unless you're a complete idiot, you know where you're going. In other words, if I'm getting on a train that goes from Raleigh to Chicago— I'm not planning on going to Los Angeles. I'm going to Chicago. I bought a ticket to Chicago. There's a known destination. There's an understood goal. There's an understood ending to this, and we're all going in the same direction heading toward that, but the discipline of keeping people on board and on track is very difficult. So where do we start? Pastors hear this. They recognize their church. It's bumper cars. Where do we start? You have to start by going back to definitions. What's the definition of the church? What's the definition of personal transformation? What's the definition of discipleship? But also, what's the definition of success? And one of the problems with the American church is we have incorrect definitions of success. Hmm. And often, they're reinforced by denominations and others who reward them for those wrong definitions. And so I know a lot of churches that are very large, but they have a wide-open back door, back door, and their percentages of assimilation or, or baptisms or discipleship are actually quite horrible. But they're, they're big, so they must be okay. And so we need to recognize that we need to define what health means, we need to define what biblical church means, and, we need to, and so we have to start with definitions. So that's, that's Bible study, that's leadership meetings, that's, uh, that's hard work. I take churches through these workshops to where we're actually writing out, writing out, longhand, writing out, here are the, the goals of a church member at blank church. Here's who, here's who a church member at blank church should be and what they should know and what they should do. And I make them write that out, and then we begin teaching those. Those become curriculum for small group, become curriculum for age-level ministries, become curriculum for the sermons and those things are reinforced. They also become the, the, the matrix for planning. Everything we're going to do will be to help people achieve these goals of discipleship. Because if we're going def- to say Great Commission fulfillment means that we've got to make disciples, then we've got to actually understand what that means you know, and define that. Yeah, but John, that sounds like that's a lot of tedious, hard, long work when in a world where we celebrate numbers, we want results yesterday. So help us think through the, the long process. Yeah, there's a little line in a... I had, to, I had to write a little book, which I didn't mean to. I don't, I'm not trying to sell a book, but I, I had to write a little book because I needed to drop off piece from some of these things I do, these speaking things I do. And, and in the, in, early in the book, I say that church revitalization is really hard work. And the next sentence is, I now know that most of you have just stopped reading this book. Mm-hmm. Um, because this is hard work. Uh, but, but I'll, I'll be honest with you, what I found is, and I used to do this with some of my students, I stopped because it depressed them too much, um, but I still do this in a lot of my consulting and interim work. When I run into the leaders who talk about they don't have time to do this or whatever, I don't have time. Like, I'll talk about leadership development. They'll say, I don't have time for that. Uh, that's a mistake. So I'll say, well, let's just let's analyze your time. And we'll actually do a time analysis mm-hmm. and find out how they're spending their time. And it's amazing how much time they have. They're just not using it well. So this is, this is hard. It is hard work, but it's also a focus. It's a focus and intentionality. 
And it's something that, that everybody listening needs to understand. Don't do this by yourself. You're not going to be successful if you do this by yourself. This is where you get together with whatever leader means in your church, whatever that means. And sometimes those are not even the titled people. Maybe it's the untitled people who are actually walking alongside of you and holding you up in the middle of a difficult place. But to be walking alongside of them to say, together, let's, let's start working on these definitions. Let's start working on these goals. Um, and, then, and then if the leaders come together, you're building a coalition for change, which gets back, Caleb, to what you were asking. Because, you know, in, my, in the system, and it's not really a system, it's, just a, it's, an observe, it's an observed process. We observe what healthy organizations do. So we're trying to help people understand this is what a healthy church does. And, and change is like step five. You know, it's not the first thing that the seminary graduate needs to go mm-hmm. out and try to do in his first mm-hmm. six months. So there's a lot before that. We need to understand the mission of God. We need to do heavy assessment. We need to work on identification. We need to work on vision development. Then we get to adjustment. And by then, you've built a coalition for adjustment to where hopefully you have a whole squad of people cheering on, we need to change, we need to change. Uh, But it takes time, and it takes hard work. Does your book cover these details? It does. It's not a. It's not the greatest book in the world. It's a. It's just a book that you know. You get invited to do things, and they want you to tell them everything that you know they ever wanted to know about church revitalization in forty-five minutes, and then they do a twenty-five minute introduction. And it's, so it's, I, I'm sitting over there with thirty PowerPoint slides, and I show them one, and so I just needed a drop-off piece. But yeah, it it describes that, and what it really is, and I mean this because I don't. I'm not a fan of step one, step two, too much. What this is, though, it's it's an observed. Because uh, part of what part of what we try to do is we we learn as much as we tell. So we we study and observe churches, and so I learn from every one of these churches, all all these churches all around the world. And so you know when you look at a bell curve life cycle, like Robert Dale's old thing that a lot of people use, you know the key is how do you stay on the left side of that life cycle? Mm-hmm. How do you just not go over the top? Well, what we have observed is here's how healthy organizations do that. And so these phases are just an observation. These are just here's what we've seen other people do to remain healthy. And so if you'll start doing this intentionally, you can, you can become healthier, and then you can stay there. I tell folks all the time that you're one of the best church consultants I know. So I want our listeners to know your book. Give us a title and a way to get a copy. Well, yeah, so— um, it's only available on Amazon. We we did a it's kind of a self published kind of thing on Amazon. There's a way to do that. It's it, it, it we feel like it looks pretty good, uh, but it's called a new normal, creating an understood value for the revitalized church. Um, and so if you just look up my name, it'll be there. But but part of this idea of understood value is key to us and to me in the sense of part of the problem or maybe the problem is is there is no understood value for the church. And so I want the average person, I always talk about the single mom with the, with the student and the child sitting there on Sunday morning. I want her to know why she's there. I want her to understand the value of being there. I want her to understand the value of that student ministry for her student. I want her to understand the value of that children's ministry. And I want it to be so valuable that soccer and baseball and, the, and everything else can't compete with it. To where, to where I understand why I need church, but that has to be defined. I have to understand that clearly. Church is going to help me to achieve this in my life. It's going to help my kids achieve these things in their life, and that's what the church is for. And, and so on the, the flip side, for the member, I want them to have an understood value, but it starts with leaders 
actually defining and remembering that the, the true value of the church. The title again is A New Normal. A New Normal, and the subtitle is Creating Understood Value for the Revitalized Church. Dr. Hewitt, one more shot here. What else would you say to pastors? Just that I love them very much, or I wouldn't be doing this. Um, I miss being a pastor. Uh, seminary life wasn't a goal, and I, I've been institutionalized for a few decades now. But um, I, every time I'm out there with you guys, I I empathize with you. Um, there there are there are very difficult people that you have to deal with. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is by Chuck Swindoll, who was talking about his inability to do pastoral care very well himself and how thankful he was for experts in his life and counselors in his life who did pastoral care. Because he said, one truth I know is light always attracts bugs. Um, and that's a true statement about the church. Mm. You know, that you'll have all kinds of interesting people, and I know how difficult they are. But you've got to remember why you're doing what you're doing. You, and so I walk through this discipline. You've got to remember why you're doing what you're doing. Why do you breathe? Why do you exist? Why are you doing this? You've got to come back to that. And guys forget that, and they forget that, and they forget that. God has a plan and a purpose. And then who are you, who should you be, and who are you trying to produce? And stay focused on that why and who, and you'll find the what's and the how's become much easier. It uh, doesn't mean that they're always pleasant, but they become easier. But they've got to be driven by those whys and who's. It's good stuff, Dr. Ewart. Thank you for a great conversation. Always a joy to be with you guys. And I want to thank you, listeners, for listening to another episode of Pastor Matters. If you found this conversation helpful, consider leaving us a five-star rating and review. We'd love to hear any feedback you'd be willing to give. As always, it's our mission at the Center for Preaching and Pastoral Leadership to equip and encourage pastors And I hope we've done that with today's conversation. As always, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain.